Today's episode of Ask Science Mike was brought to you by Pinatagrams. Why send a letter when you could send a pinata? Find out more at pinatagrams.com. And by SaneBox. Learn how to manage your email automatically in just 15 minutes by going to sanebox.com slash AskScienceMike. God's will, racist grandparents, and historical Christianity. All that and more on this week's episode of Ask Science Mike. You've got questions, he's got answers. Even though we may not understand, he'll talk anyway. You've got problems, he won't solve them. But he'll talk and talk and talk until he's blue in the face. Science, faith, and life. Welcome to Ask Science Mike, the weekly podcast where I answer your questions about science, faith, and life. I want to let you know that June 9th, I'll be in Saratoga, California, right in the heart of Silicon Valley, doing the Saratoga Federated Church Village Forum. We're going to talk about science and faith and doubt and all that good stuff. I'd love to see you there, but, you know, we've got a show to do right now, so let's get it started. Well, hey, friends. Uh, You know, I usually save the announcements for the end of the show, but I've got a couple this week that are just really important, and uh, they're about things people have been asking me about quite a lot. So I'm going to do two very quick announcements at the top of the show, and then we'll proceed with our normal question and answer format. The first thing I'd like to tell you about is something that Andrew Galucky, one of the pre-producers on the show, put together. Uh, You know, a lot of you, when I go to different cities, say you've come not only to see me, but to meet other people who think like you, who in some way feel like they're on the edge of the church, they don't quite belong. And you've asked for ways to find each other and to get together. And uh, we're trying something really simple here. Uh, It's called Together, and we're making Facebook groups. It's that simple. We're making Facebook groups for different cities. We started with the cities where the show gets downloaded the most. But if you want us to create another together group for your city, we can do that. And what we're going to do is if you go to AskScienceMike.com and go to this episode, there'll be like a little uh, red icon that says together. If you click on that, it'll be a listing of all the places we have together groups. You can just click and join one. And if you don't see your city listed, you can contact us and we'll make one for your city. This is super low-tech, low-administration. Andrew doing this in his spare time. I'm a part of all those groups, so when I'm available, I'd love to be a part of your discussions. But this, the main focus here is facilitating meetups and interaction and conversations among people who sometimes feel like they're the only one. So that's, that's one. A second, this fall, I've got a book coming out called Finding God in the Waves, and I'm going to do a book tour. Now, we've already uh, booked several cities uh, in that book tour, but I wanted to let you know that you can be a part of my book tour, and here's how. Again, we've taken the cities where I get the most downloads on the show, and if you'd like to bring me to your city, you can do so without paying a speaker's fee. All you're going to need to do is pay like travel and expenses, which is uh, much less expensive than having to pay a speaker fee. And then we'll sell tickets and do an Ask Science Mike Live. And the trick is this has to happen specific dates and all that. Uh, but you can bring me to your city uh, for an absolutely lower cost than has ever been possible before. 
Uh, now, if you're not in one of those cities, no big deal. We're also going to have special steep discounts on appearances during the book tour period as long as I'm able to promote the book at the event. So there's never been an easier time to get me to your town, to your church or college or community than this fall. If you'd like more information about that, go to findinggodandthewaves.com slash launch, and there's more information. You can fill out a form there, and we'll be in touch soon to set up, well, a stop in your town for the Finding God in the Waves book tour. Again, that's findinggodandthewaves.com slash launch. Hey, Science Mike. Love the show. Quick question for you. Uh, the questions around philosophical schools of thought that existed before the birth of Christianity, specifically in Greece from Plato, Aristotle, Epicurus, Platonists, the Stoics. So I've widely heard that Platonism and Neoplatonism heavily influenced the early church. And my questions are, what exactly are these philosophical schools of thought and how do they shape Christianity during its infancy? Uh, like you, I'm a Christian mystic now studying the Eastern Church, and uh, I feel like they have a higher philosophical and intellectual level uh, that they speak out of, and I think it's because of these, um, phil- how these philosophies really uh, influence their teachings. So we'd love to hear your perspective. Thanks for all you do. Love the show. And uh, this could probably be a big enough question for a liturgist podcast. Thanks. Bye. This is an absolutely amazing question. It's an essential question, and it may be the hardest question to answer in the history of the program. It pulls out all my deepest insecurities uh, that almost kept me from starting this podcast in the first place. Namely, why would anyone listen to me? (laughs) Since I'm not a theologian, I'm not seminary trained, I'm not a physicist, I'm not a scientist, I don't even have a college degree. I'm a guy who reads a lot and uh, is pretty good at synthesizing information and summarizing it for other people. And when I speak on issues of science, I've invested so much of my life into accurately understanding what uh, scientists are talking about on different topics that I get a lot of emails from scientists saying, wow, you did a really good job representing my area of study. And when I speak on matters of faith or life, I tend to tell you about my personal faith journey, which I can be an authority on, and I can tell you what's worked for me. And then the same thing, when people ask me questions for advice in life, a category I'm surprised that ends up being the most common question submitted to the program, I just tell you what I've learned in my years of being an idiot trying to survive in the world. But Questions like these, really important historical questions that inform our faith, I just have to start with a disclaimer that I'm in no way qualified to answer this question. <laughs> it's a question that I've spent you know, a long time digging into, and it highlights for me the fundamental difference between history and more hard sciences like biology or physics. And that is history is messy. We don't have, especially as you go further back into history, really great forensic records that have a lot of detail letting us know when things happened, who informed whom. We just don't have that information. So historians kind of build a narrative out of the fragments they have, and that's why historians can have such dramatically different opinions on what really happened or what's the most accurate. So 
I'm not qualified to weigh the claims of one historian versus another. And so I just kind of try to familiarize myself with as many as possible and then see which seems the most reasonable to my completely unqualified self. So as I answer this, I've spent a day and a half brushing up on this topic just for this question. It's more time than I put into any question on the show. I literally have notes, like notebook paper. I have a ton of websites, and I have uh, several of my favorite books about the topic that I went through and reread key passages. And here's the thing. Even with all that work, some of my answer I'm about to give you will fall outside of historical consensus, I'm sure. Some of it I'll probably flub dates, even though I've worked really hard to fact check myself. So the best thing you can do is use this as a rough overview because people spend careers trying to address this topic. Not just books, but volumes of books. An hour or or two-hour liturgist podcast could barely scratch the surface, uh, much less an answer on Ask Science Mike. And I've spent like two minutes on the disclaimer here. Uh, So we'll go ahead and I'll kind of talk to you about uh, how I understand that in a very specific context. I'm going to give you a light overview of what happened just before the time of Christ, in the time of Christ, and then after. Okay? And I'm not going to be able to go into depth on anything because there's just not time. Uh, But basically, the region of the world that Christianity emerged from uh, is today called Palestine, uh, historical uh, Judea and Samaria. And that part of the world uh, was conquered uh, about you know 400 BC by Alexander the Great. It's this great Greek conquest of the world, and then later, uh, you know, like 150, 200 years before the time of Christ, it was conquered uh, by the Roman Empire. So it had these you know successions of conquerings, which is frankly very normal for that part of the world. It's been an occupied territory for most of its history, uh, and that means. The soil from which Christianity sprouted, and even uh, Jesus himself, had three distinct influences. And the first would be Roman influence, and the Roman context for the life of Christ and for early Christians was the government background, uh, the economic background, their currency, for example. Uh, They provide the law, the legal background. And, uh, of course, there was a huge religious impact from Rome on the church via Constantine, but that was much later. In the time of Christ, the religious impact of Rome on Christ was not as significant, um, and even on the early Christians. Although a pagan faith uh, did play a big part in opposition to Judaism at the time and early Christianity because the monotheistic claims— of those two faiths ran heavy counter to the culture, and therefore the term atheist was coined to deal with Jews and Christians because they denied the existence of the pantheon. Very interesting that that word today that Christians hurl at secularists was originally hurled at Jewish people and Christians. So the first stream is that Roman stream. The second stream would be the Greek stream, the cultural stream. Now, the Greeks had been conquered by Rome uh, militarily, but Greek culture was incredibly influential in the Roman Empire. And because of that, the educational context, the cultural context, and the philosophical context of Greek was incredibly influential 
uh, especially in the early church, but also played some role in Jerusalem and in Israel uh, in the time of Christ. Uh, Now, there were a lot of different competing philosophies happening in that part of the world at that time that were Greek in nature. You know, this is when some people will say, well, that's Greek to me, and that that joke would suddenly be literally true. (laughs) Uh, So you had kind of the Epicurean versus Stoic uh, philosophy happening, uh, starting about 300 years before the birth of Christ, but still a serious discussion in that part of the world. Uh, the Epicureans were uh, believed in a very material world. Uh, they then tended to, to respond with a very sensualist view because gods exist, but they're apart from the world. They don't have any role with us, so we don't worship them, and uh, they don't need us, so we can do what we want to do. You know, we're basically random, right? Uh, very interesting how that Epicurean ideal uh, so influences modern philosophy. And then you have Stoicism which kind of asserted that the world was divine in nature and there was this unmoved mover. And the way to enlightenment was to control the emotions and was to live with a will in alignment with natural order. Okay, And among all that, you also had Platonic philosophy, which was becoming a big deal. And in Platonic philosophy, uh, you had this idea of ideal forms, Oh, everything in reality was an imperfect representation of some ideal structure in a third realm. Of course, that's what Plato talked about all the time. Of course, later in Greek philosophy, you also had the influence of Gnosticism, whose origins are more poorly understood historically than Platonic philosophy or Epicurean philosophy or Stoicism. But all this discussion of Greek philosophy is almost getting ahead of itself, because remember, in this region— You had Alexander the Great come through 400 B.C. in that neighborhood, conquer the region. Then the Romans came through and reconquered it. Also ended up uh, incorporating or or, uh, conquering Greece and putting Greece under the Roman rule. So little old Israel was not a global power at this point. King Herod, Herod the Great, and later his son uh, Herod Antipas were both uh, kind of puppets. They just submitted to Roman rule, which was probably smart. (laughs) At this time, the Roman military was an unstoppable force. Uh, And so for the elites, for the connected in society, Greek philosophy and culture were really influential. But out in Galilee and Nazareth and kind of those backwater small areas, the Hellenization of this region Uh, wasn't as significant. And so more significant probably to Jesus and his disciples were several movements in Judaism, uh, all of which were kind of reactions to Roman rule. Uh, You had the Pharisees, which anybody from a Christian background has heard of the Pharisees and knows something about them. They had this belief in an oral law that God gave to Moses at Sinai along with the Torah, which was the written law. And it was, uh, you know, the authority on how to please God and live life. Uh, the Pharisees believed in an afterlife and thought God punished the wicked. You know, uh, all the kinds of things we read about in uh, the Old and New Testaments. There were also the Sadducees who uh, wanted to have, you know, priests and a priestly uh, caste, but they were way more willing to incorporate Hellenistic ideas 
into their lives and their religion, which is something Pharisees staunchly opposed. Uh, So in addition to some theological differences, for example, Sadducees completely rejected the oral law and insisted that the Torah was the only law. Uh, They also were way more likely to cooperate with uh, Roman authorities and Greek uh, cultural influences, okay? Uh, And so the Pharisees and the Sadducees were like the major ruling elite of Jewish society in the first century. Now, there was a third faction called the Essenes who had total disgust and contempt for the first two and they uh, reacted by living monastic life, committing to celibacy, and uh, just completely separating themselves from society. In addition to the Essenes, there was another group, which would be mainly considered maybe a subset of the Pharisees, and that was the Zealots. And the Zealots wanted to overthrow the Roman government by force. They wanted to cast off Roman rule and go to war. And those systems, you'll notice, are defined not just by theological differences, but also by differences in how to relate to Roman rule. And so absolutely, that was uh, conversations and influences that would have been at play in the life of Christ and in the life of Christ's disciples. And you can't really read about the words of Christ and the teachings of Christ without considering that what Christ taught was in the context of Roman rule. You can't read the book of Revelation without thinking about the history of conquering that happened in the land of Israel without Rome, without Babylon, without that context. You just can't read these texts uh, well. Uh, Now, as we get later, after the life of Christ, so you get into Pauline Christianity and post-Pauline Christianity and the early church, then you see an ever-increasing influence from Greek philosophy. Uh, Neoplatonic philosophy uh, was a huge part of how early Christian theology was formed, especially the idea of emanation, you know, God, this this, uh, great being, and these... these, uh, spheres that extend out from God, and God emanates into reality. Uh, It's from that idea that a philosopher named Philo came up with the word logos in the context of Christianity. So what Philo did was try to marry Jewish and Greco-Roman and primarily Greek philosophies together, and was very influential in the early church as a result. And you have all those streams at play at the same time Uh, in this part of history. It was radical, radical. So here's the thing. What I've just given is like a really simplistic summary. There's really significant fine points in how all these things would intersected, intersected at different points of history. And uh, the point I want to make is when we interpret Christianity that we view as some objective lens, or without a historical context, what we're really doing is interpreting Christ's, Christ's teachings in church history through modernism, because we live in the modern era. And we, uh, when we read it like uh, modern texts, modern histories, we're doing a disservice 
uh, to that text. We're doing a disservice to those teachings. And we have to, I feel like we have to admit that what we understand about Christ and Christianity primarily comes to the Bible and then also comes from church history, and that those processes were carried out with agendas and needs and beliefs uh, that happen in a culture, which is why when I read the Bible, I read it in a historical, critical way. Uh, so here's a few things I would say. Uh, I've included a link to an article interviewing several actual experts from PBS called Hellenistic Culture, The Influence of Greek Language, Philosophy, and Culture on Jews and Early Christians. You can check that out and read it for free. It's a great little summary. If you want to go deeper, uh, I'm going to recommend to you some of my favorite books uh, from modern scholars. Backgrounds of Early Christianity is available on Amazon. It's not a well-known book, but it's one I've personally found very helpful just for getting some academic grounding in the interplay of all these cultures I just talked about. Another great book is A History of God by Karen Armstrong. She's one of the most respected religious scholars in the world, and it's a, it's a dense read, uh, but it will take you through basically the history of human belief in God, including the genesis of Christianity and what was happening uh, contemporarily. Uh, Zealot is a great book by Rene Aslan. Um, that's a, a biography of Christ, basically. And then uh, Bert Ehrman has two books I really enjoy. One is Misquoting Jesus, and the other is How Jesus Became God. Now, depending on your context, some of these books will be radically different, and they don't all agree with each other. Uh, I'm inviting you to weigh people's claims against each other. Uh, but if you want to go deeper in these topics, and I think it is important, one of the great weaknesses of the modern Christian faith is the way we excessively modernize it and personalize it to our context. Uh, these resources will help you dig deeper. Our next question came in via email, and it reads, Science Mike, we often hear sermons about the concept of God's will. In some Christian circles, martyrdom is glorified. Kind of the concept, uh, if I want to do music, I better learn to lay that down because God might call me to the mission field in the worst parts of the world that threaten my safety because humility. Then you have those in the more creative Rob Bell camps who promote the pursuit of creativity and shockingly the enjoyment of our lives and talents and passions and dreams. My question is, what do you personally believe about God's will and how one interprets the calling on their life? Great question. Interesting question. Um, yeah, the whole God's will thing in some more conservative or even fundamentalist streams of Christianity almost have a acerbic or stoic tent. You know, if you enjoy something, you can become prideful about it. So you always have to be careful about what your motivations are. And I think there's a kernel of wisdom there. I do. Uh, I think we can do things for unhealthy reasons. I think... Um, when people aren't affirmed or validated enough, especially by themselves, they can become really hungry for approval or praise, and that's normal for a social primate. <laughs> uh, but I think ultimately it's healthier to learn to do things because they are fulfilling or helpful 
Um, but that's a value judgment on my part. Uh, in terms of how I or what I think about God's will, remember, I'm a mystic. So I primarily approach my faith and the Bible from a historical, critical context. I'm placing these ideas within a historical framework. And when I'm going to make claims about my faith, I'm going to use anthropology and archaeology. I'm going to use uh, history to make fact claims about Jesus, his disciples, the early church. Uh, And God's will, I can talk about what we believe with an understanding of their cultural contexts, uh, Jesus or the disciples or Paul would have said about God's will, and I find those things instructive to me. Uh, I uh, am a Christian, and I'm a part of a church, uh, and I'm specifically a Methodist, and the Methodists have this quadrilateral uh, where the Scripture is one thing that helps us understand God's will, and another thing is reason, and another is uh, tradition, and uh, I can't even remember the fourth one. (laughs) Some Methodist I am. I'm going to Google it right now. And I'm not editing this out on purpose, so Greg, leave this in. I want people to know uh, (laughs) my knowledge is limited. (laughs) Uh, Scripture, tradition, reason, and experience. Oh, yeah, experience is a good one. And I I like that idea. I like that those four things kind of interplay together to help us understand God, help us understand our faith. Uh, In terms of God's specific will, again, I kind of look at things in this mystic way, and I say I can't speak for God or or fully understand God's will. I can look at how God was revealed in the Christ. I can look at how God has worked in history. Uh, I won't go talk about more about that in a, a question in a couple of minutes, actually the next question. Uh, but I say that, and then I read the Bible uh, using Lexio Divina, and when I do that, I'm actually reading the Bible through an entirely personal context, seeing what, what the words may have for me today. What my how my experiences can intermesh with the scripture and create insights. In terms of calling for life, I don't know. I don't know that there is one way to know God's will that's better than all the others, or even if that's a thing. I think I think I have friends who are not Christians who do not believe in God, but they have callings. They live lives of purpose, and they're fulfilled. Is that God's will? I have friends who are devout Orthodox, little o Orthodox Christians who are depressed and despondent and don't know what to do with their lives, is that simply because they haven't uncovered God's will? I don't know. I don't know. I tend to think that a life of meaning and purpose, and I find that in my faith, is when I learn how my suffering has shaped me, and I use that to help others suffer less. And I think that's a very Jesus-centered idea. Uh, I was bullied as a kid. and you, If you follow my work at all, I talk about it all the time. Not because I haven't recovered from it. I've really integrated those experiences into my life. But the way I was shaped by bullying gives me insights that help other people who suffered in that way or even other ways. So in that way, I go back to the echoes of that pain in order to help others feel less alone and maybe come up with coping strategies. 
Uh, and then there's things I do just because I enjoy them. I love video games. Blizzard just released a video game called Overwatch. And uh, I played it for like three hours the other day. I was really exhausted actually from researching the first question this week. And I just needed to like turn my brain off. So I played, I played Blizzard's Overwatch and I had a blast. I don't feel guilty about it. It's just something I enjoy. There's a rhythm in life. We spend and we have to refuel. Uh, is that God's will? I don't know. I think that pattern is certainly described in the Bible. I think that's a lot of what Sabbath talks about and how Sabbath is a part of finding shalom, God's peace. I guess if I have to pin it down, uh, this would be a defining feature of why I'm not just a Christian, but why I'm comfortable in the Methodist stream of Christianity is that quadrilateral idea that uh, Scripture and reason and tradition and experience all come together to help us understand God better to the degree that God can be understood, which is why I guess I'm a mystic too. Great question. Hi, Science Mike. My name is Sarah. I live in Cincinnati. I have been wanting to ask you this question for so long, and finally you mentioned one of my favorite authors, Brian Greene, on your Liturgist podcast a few weeks back. I have been thinking so much about his work, and I heard him on on Being with Krista Tippett, and at that moment, I suddenly realized that I thought God could be real. I know he's just... Um, comfortable with being an agnostic and not particularly interested in God, but I was fascinated by his multiple theories of the multiverse, and it really got me doing some crazy thought experiments in my head about what is God's mechanism of action. In my mind, God could be a conscious entity that interacts with us somehow, and if God interacts with us, there must be some way that God does this. So, does God have some mystery wave frequency that he hasn't um, allowed us to discover yet or that we haven't discovered yet? Is God folded up in one of those other dimensions of string theory? Um, Is God in one of the brains that's keeping up or that's occupying the same space as us? Um, I have just found this to be an extremely fun and kind of creative thought experiment to do. I haven't come in and into any good conclusions, but I thought you might have some fun insights. So hope to hear what you have to say. Thanks. I think, uh, wow, I know what you feel. <laughs> I know where you're at with this question because physics-centered theological pontification is probably my alcoholism. (laughs) It's a thing I do in moderation. It's fun. If you take it too far, it destroys your life. And I have a tendency to not be able to uh, theologically pontificate in the context of science in moderation. I tend to do it in excess until I get sick and fall over. And uh, (laughs) so this is a question I've thought about a lot. Um, And here's the problem. I'll start with the problem, and then I'll go back towards actually answering the question. When we look for uh, a God of some uh, preconception, like a a God who's a being who could be described as having consciousness, and we start to look for that God in physics, uh, which really doesn't reveal a God of that kind, we find a God that is either... either, um, intentionally hiding 
or uh, we just haven't discovered yet. The first God is uh, logically troubling, and the second God uh, comes close to the idea of the God and the gaps. The God is simply that which we don't know, right? That God is beyond the understanding of science today. And I don't find either of those ideas to be very encouraging, satisfying, or epistemologically sound. Now, I've spent a lot of time, you know, it's really fun to learn about the multiverse. It's fun to learn about the frontiers of physics, but it's important to remember that when we talk about the multiverse, when we talk even about string theory and brains, B-R-A-N-E-S, these uh, uh, space-time constructs that uh, undergird our reality and some variations of string theory, we are talking about a hypothesis that is not accepted or demonstrated scientifically today. String theory is popular, but every string theorist will tell you they don't have experimental or observational support to firm up or make accepted this very mathematically elegant model of reality. Now, here's where I'm at today. As you know, I've said it on this show already, I am a mystic. So I don't think I know very many facts about God, but if I were to talk about God's mechanism of action, all of them. I find God in the Higgs field, this uh, Higgs ocean in Brian Greene's terms that allows matter to exist during our universe. I find God in the fundamental forces of physics. I find God at the heart of black holes and in the singularity from which our universe likely emerged. Uh, I don't separate God from the universe. I guess when I think about God in that way, I get closer to pantheism or panentheism than any other theistic approach to God. But I don't even want to, you know, lock myself into terms like that. Uh, God is a great mystery. God is not a being in my mind. God is being itself, the ground of being. Uh, God is what allows anything to be in the first place. So when we learn more about science, we learn more about God. It's not that God is what we don't know in science, although I think we will find God there, but we're finding God already in science. Werner Heisenberg is one of the architects of quantum dynamics and uh, particle physics, and he said the first gulp from the glass of the natural sciences, will turn you into an atheist. But God is waiting for you at the bottom of the glass. And I believe that fully. What happens with science is that it starts to dismantle our preconceptions about God. It it does undermine some ancient historical claims, fact claims about God. But when we study deeper in the sciences... We find that the things we ascribe to God, something that creates, sustains the universe, something that we experience day to day in our lives, there is scientific grounding for those ideas. And I've spent the largest chapter of my adult life and the most energy I have diving into that question. And where I've arrived is is the God of my axiom. (laughs) Uh, this God that is physics itself. 
This God that is impersonal and distant. This God that may be beyond human understanding, ultimately. Uh, But that God is a God we can't really know, and yet we know God. And so I also find God dwelling within us in our synapses, in our neurons, in our brains. And I can't... This... (laughs) This is the like week you guys are sending me questions I can't fit in uh, Ask Science Mike, which <laughs> we're 38 minutes into the episode, and I think we're on the second question. Uh, so sorry about a really long episode. but um, So here's, here's what I'll tell you. One, there's a book uh, called Grounded by Diana Butler Bass, and uh, it talks a little bit about a God that's found everywhere. It's a great book. And then there's another book coming out in September called Finding God in the Ways that I Wrote. And the two chapters in the first half, or in the second half of the book, the first two chapters in the second half of the book are about this question. Two full chapters. Now, I'll be honest. When you read my book, the first half of it is like this memoir that is about losing my faith and then up to that moment at the beach. And then the second half of the book kind of changes tone, and I topically, bit by bit, show how I understand God and Jesus, the Bible, the church, everything of Christianity in the context of science, how I relate to it today. And the two like most science-dense chapters in the whole book by far are the two chapters about God. I actually worry that some people won't get through them because they're so dense. Um, but hopefully people continue because as you get further into the church and the Bible, it gets much more uh, personal again. Uh, but when I talk about God, I really get to the heart of how I understand not just science, but philosophy and epistemology. I mean, it's a big question. So uh, I hate to push you off to other resources, but I can answer the question better in my book. And of course, I also would encourage you to check out Grounded. It's a great book as well. So I'd like to take a moment and talk to you about the show's two sponsors this week. Uh, I really love them both. And they're products I use personally. The first is Pinata Grams. I mentioned it on last week's show, and it, they've told me there was a big response from that. So thank you. It's amazing. You send people a pinata in the mail. You go to pinatagrams.com, you fill out a form, you pay $20 plus shipping, and they ship a pinata full of candy to a person of your choosing. It is adorable. It is simply adorable. Uh, I've sent one uh, to a couple of folks, and then I've received one as well. You literally, not in a box or anything, this pinata just comes in the mailbox or to someone's office. Imagine that. People get flowers, they get cards, candies, letters all the time. It's whimsical and fun to send a pinata. So it'll be full of candy. It'll have a label on the outside as well as a message for the person you're sending it to. It's really going to stand out and be memorable. Uh, check it out, pinatagrams.com. The other uh, sponsor this week is SaneBox. I get so much email. It's insane. And so email becomes a point of dread for me. Am I going to open my email and get swamped and get taken off task? But not anymore. SaneBox is magic. It's like having someone go through your email and sort it for you. Only the important stuff that you need to act on from people you know makes it to the inbox. Everything else gets put in another email box. 
You can look through at your leisure. It works with almost every email service on every device and every email app. You don't have to change anything about your email setup. Uh, SaneBox will just come in and start working for you. It's amazing. So you can get a discount on your subscription by going to SaneBox.com slash ScienceMike. I highly recommend it. It's an amazing product. And both Pinatagrams and SaneBox help make Ask Science Mike possible. Our last question came in via email, and it reads, Hey, Science Mike, my question stems mainly out of frustration with old people. Now, before I sound too heartless, let me give my question some context. I am currently giving pro bono psychological evaluations to undocumented immigrants to aid their court case in their fight to stay in the United States. When Ted Cruz dropped out of the presidential race recently, I was at my fiancé's house while his grandma was watching Fox News. She said she was heartbroken that her favorite candidate had lost. Being the liberal I am, I stepped out of the room to make sure that I didn't say anything to start a political conversation with her because we agree on nothing in that sphere. After a few minutes, she wandered into the room and told me that she was heartbroken for my generation because we will be stuck with the president who will have policies that forces her grandchildren to deal with the illegals. I was raging upset with her, but of course, I don't feel comfortable going down that road with my fiancé's sweet grandma. Here's where my question and need for advice lies. I understand that her generation grew up in a very different historical context than me. They dealt with war, national poverty, and government-driven xenophobia. Of course, she is going to base her opinions on her own experience. But it blows my mind to see a woman who so deeply cares for her family and friends, and of course is a very strong Christian, to reduce a group of marginalized people to an identity of illegals. Let me say that she is probably not what you're picturing, one of those caricatured and classically racist white grandmothers. She isn't that way at all. She really is very sweet and always doing things for other people. But how can somebody who really does live out love still be thinking this way? How do I engage with the people of this generation on the topics that I care about? Is it even worth it when the reality is that they're at the end of their life? How can we practically engage with her generation? And should we? Thank you, Mike McKenzie from Seattle. What a timely question. (laughs) In a likely Hillary Clinton, Donald Trump primary, I would imagine that, uh, Radical political polarization will be something a lot of us are going to be dealing with. Conversations that we've typically avoided are going to happen at dinner tables and at holidays. And how do we have those conversations best? Well, the first thing I like to remember is that my grandchildren will probably judge some of my views harshly. In general, Our moral vision moves faster than changes in moral behavior. And this is, in my opinion, good. It urges us to always do better. It wasn't too long ago historically that people would get together in a tavern and boil a live cat in hot oil as a means of entertainment. It wasn't that long ago we watched humans fight to the death as a means of entertainment. Uh, But today we watch humans pound each other with their fists 
with long-term health consequences. Uh, today, we eat animals produced in horrific factory conditions, and I suspect future generations will judge us harshly. I think even those of us who consider ourselves more forward-thinking on race issues will be judged harshly by people in the future for how we dealt with racist systems in society or addressed poverty. At least that's my hope. So I offer the grace to older people with older moral views that I hope will one day be offered to me. I hope that my grandchildren will understand that I was doing my best in the context in which I was raised, and that's what most people do. So I always start with a measure of grace, even in situations and topics that genuinely and deeply offend me or give me some sense of moral outrage. Now, if you actually want to have a productive conversation, you can go farther than just offering grace. I've always found it helpful to take the conversation away from the theoretical and into the personal. And I don't mean make it personal between you and your grandmother-in-law. I mean, don't speak of um, undocumented workers and their plight in some geopolitical context. Use names of people you know and their stories and simply tell how that story provoked compassion in you or a change in the way you view things. Don't offer any uh, defense. Don't get tricked into a debate. Uh, just say, you know, I, I hear where you're coming from, and I identify with that in a lot of ways. Uh, but I had this experience, and then just tell the story. Just tell the story. And uh, don't even necessarily try to drive that story home or uh, land people anywhere. Just let them sit with that narrative. We understand scientifically that is an extremely powerful way to shift people's opinions over time. Here's the other piece. It's perfectly okay to set boundaries or tell someone when something makes you uncomfortable. Even your grandmother. One of my older relatives, uh, when I was younger, would frequently call uh, black people the N-word. And that was just the term he addressed black people with. And I found it offensive. And I said that. And he stopped using that word in my presence. It's okay to say when something makes you uncomfortable that, you know, that's how we have civil society. And if someone can't respect your reasonable wishes, you know, that's when you use boundaries. <laughs> that's when you uh, limit your exposure to that relationship. So, be full of grace, personalize conversations using story and actual experiences, and understand it's okay to set boundaries and tell people when they say something that makes you uncomfortable, which, by the way, that kind of social pressure, especially when presented in a way that's non-inflammatory, can also help change people's beliefs and behaviors since we are social primates. Super, super timely question uh, in the age of Donald Trump. 
Well, there's another episode of Ask Science Mike, uh, and you've listened to the whole thing, almost an hour long. Maybe Greg will uh, you know, trim that down. He's pretty sharp that way. Uh, but we'll see. Uh, hopefully it was interesting. As always, I go where you lead the questions, and these were the questions that people picked this week, so I have to answer them. <laughs> Um, in addition to the stuff we talked about at the top of the show, we'll let you know I'm going to be at Wild Goose in July. Uh, the liturgist will be there as well, so we're going to have an Ask Science Mike live. We'll also do the first ever uh, live uh, version of the liturgist podcast. If you'd like to join us, use GooseCast2016 when you buy a ticket to get 25% off. I believe any ticket that's available, so that's a really amazing deal. GooseCast2016. Also, uh, the liturgist gathering that we're doing. It's not just you, right? We're learning that there's a lot of us that feel drawn to God, that want to have some part of historical Christianity, but feel homeless or frustrated in the church today. Uh, we're getting together in Chicago and Denver in September and October. You can go to theliturgist.com or any of the liturgist social media profiles to learn more, uh, but... Those events are filling up. So we're about uh, 75% full right now for Chicago, a little less than half full in Denver, but tickets are selling every day. Uh, I know it's it's the fall seems so far away, but um, if you're thinking about going, get some more information, maybe set yourself a reminder. Uh, the tickets are, are really affordable, and we'd love to see you at the Liturgist Gathering. Um I want to thank a few people. I want to thank all my patrons on Patreon. Uh, not only for making the show possible financially, you are the show's biggest sponsor, uh, but also for doing the work of picking the questions every week. Uh, thank you. It takes a, a huge load off my shoulders to know I'm talking exactly about what you want to talk about. I'd also like to thank Andrew the Lucky, who does this show's pre-production, who's also organizing the Together Project kind of like the gathering, help, help us find each other, help us feel less alone in the world. I want to thank Greg Nordine for producing the show and Jeff Bodiford for writing the Ask Science Mike theme song. Thanks for listening, everyone, and I will talk to you next week. Mm-hmm.